Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today we'll be going over the facts of a case that has been all over the media the last few months and wildly speculated. The death of Debbie Collier. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. When I decided I wanted to cover Debbie's case, I wasn't exactly sure how to do it or where to even start. I wanted to be able to provide a place where everyone could get the rundown of the facts without having to sift through everything else that has spread like wildfire. So we're going to start with what a lot of people already know. That on September 10th, 2022, at 3.17 p.m., Debbie Collier sent her daughter a Venmo and the amount of $2,385 with a note that read, They are not going to let me go. Love you. There is a key to the house in the blue flower pot by the door. The following day, her body was found in the woods, partially clothed, badly burnt, and clutching to a tree. For the rest of the episode, we're going to go over the days leading up to the discovery of Debbie's body and then go through the timeline of events that resulted in the final conclusion of her case, which came out just last week. 59-year-old Debbie Collier was the stability in the lives of those around her. She had two children of her own, an adult son named Jeffrey and an adult daughter named Amanda. She got married to a man named Stephen in 2013 who had children of his own and they combined their families. Debbie worked at the front office of a real estate company in Athens, Georgia, and Stephen had a good career going for him as well. It looks like he owned several different properties across Athens, all modest homes, and it's one of those homes that Debbie's daughter Amanda moved into on Thursday, September 8th of this year, 2022. It looks like it's a house that Amanda had lived in on and off for several years. Amanda lived most of her life in Georgia, but had moved to Maryland to live near her brother for a while, but that whole setup didn't work out. She went into detail about whatever rift caused her to decide to move back to Georgia with crime on the record on YouTube, but because it doesn't really impact the outcome of Debbie's case, I'm not going to go into too much detail there. That being said, it is a really great interview, and it's available to anyone who wants to watch it at Crime on the Record's YouTube account. When Amanda moved back to Georgia, she brought her boyfriend Andrew back with her. Andrew told Fox 5 Atlanta that the day after they moved in, Debbie brought them some lunch. After the lunch drop-off, 11 Alive reports that Amanda and her mom ran some errands, grabbed some dinner, and then went their separate ways. Later that night, September 9th, Debbie's husband Stephen says that he saw Debbie at 9 p.m. when he was going to bed. That was the last time he ever saw his wife. The following morning, September 10th, he said her car was still parked in the driveway when he left for work. Initially, people thought it was a little strange that he simply said he saw her vehicle and not Debbie, but according to Eleven Alive, the two slept in separate bedrooms because of his loud snoring, something that plenty of people do. Throughout the day, Amanda told Crime on the record that she and her mom texted back and forth but never spoke on the phone. She was doing some cleaning around the house, and it wasn't until around 5 p.m. that she noticed that 3.17 p.m. Venmo with the cryptic note that made headlines. I know we talked about it earlier, but let's hear it again. Attached to the $2,385 money transfer, Debbie wrote, They're not going to let me go. Love you. There's a key to the house in the blue flower pot by the door. Obviously, this sent Amanda into a panic, so she called her mom but didn't get an answer. She called her stepfather to see if he knew where Debbie was, but he didn't know either. 
By 6 p.m., the police were at the Collier home and Amanda and Stephen were filing a missing persons report. Before we go any further down in the timeline, we definitely have to go through what that message attached to the Venmo might mean. The Venmo transfer was actually a public transfer and can be seen on both Amanda and Stephen and Debbie's shared account. They'd sent Amanda money in the past, and you can't see the amounts, but they're all for simple things like gas, never something that would be thousands of dollars. On the surface, I think everyone can agree that it looked like Debbie was telling her daughter that someone had taken her and that they weren't going to let her go. What didn't make sense was why she sent that message via Venmo and didn't use that time on her phone to call 911, send a text without money attached to it, or seek out any kind of help. But if you go down that route, you have to take into consideration the missing persons report, which says that Debbie left the house with only her debit card and ID, which begged the question, if that's all she took, whose phone or computer did she use to log into Venmo and send that money? When I was researching this case, I actually logged into Venmo on an unrecognized device, and it asked for a two-factor authentication. Not only did I have to remember my login and password, which is a feat in and of itself, I had to have access to either my phone or my email account to receive a one-time code and then log into the unrecognized device. If Debbie didn't leave the house with her phone and used another device to log into her Venmo, she also would have had to log into her email to get that code. And it seemed extremely unlikely that any potential abductors would have allowed her access to either of them, especially if she was going to be using it to let her know about said abduction. Which also had people wondering if maybe said abductors had allowed Debbie to access her Venmo account in an effort to have her transfer them some money in some sort of digital ransom. But that Debbie took the situation into her own hands and sent it to her daughter instead, also letting her know that she had been taken. The attempts to try and decipher what situation Debbie could have been in where she'd have access to any kind of communication, and that being the one she chose, were endless. But then you get to the very random yet very specific amount of money, $2,385. People looked up her kids' birthdays to see if any of them were $2,385, which they were not. They looked up house numbers since Debbie worked at a realtor's office. They wondered if it was a passcode to a realtor's key box, the passcode to her phone, or even numbers corresponding with letters of the alphabet. For reference, that would translate to B-C-H-E, which doesn't give you anything. People following the case tried and tried endlessly to try and make sense of any of it, but nothing fit. Along with trying to figure out why Debbie chose Venmo as her means of communication, people wondered why Debbie was telling her daughter where the key to the house was. It seemed odd that Amanda wouldn't already know that, and why was that something she wanted to make sure Amanda knew if her abductors weren't going to let her go? This made some people wonder if maybe the message wasn't as sinister as people thought. That maybe Debbie and Amanda had plans that evening and that maybe her work wasn't going to let her go early or get out on time, so she wanted to let Amanda know where the keys were so she could let herself into the house since Stephen was working that day. 
But that theory was shot down pretty quickly when, according to Google, the realty office where Debbie worked was closed on the weekends. And even if the office wasn't closed, it still wouldn't explain the lump sum of money. Needless to say, the speculation raged on, and it's easy to understand why. We live in a world where true crime has become somewhat proactive, where people want to do anything they can to help solve a crime from home, and while that can be amazing in cases like Gabby Petito, it can also become toxic when it's not done with tact or within some kind of boundary. And it feels like there were some boundary-crossing times when it came to the media coverage in this case, while everyone was waiting around for legitimate updates from law enforcement. After reporting Debbie missing, there wasn't much that Amanda or Steven could do. Amanda drove around to the places she knew her mom would go shopping on the weekends, but she didn't see her mom's vehicle anywhere. For reference, her mom was driving a rental van because of an accident she'd gotten into back in August, and I've seen different reports about when the van was rented. Some say it was the day before she disappeared, and some say it was the day of her disappearance, but frankly, it really doesn't affect much. What is interesting is that the independent reports that the other car involved in the accident was driven by someone who was out on parole someone who allegedly begged her not to report it to police because driving would have put them in violation. Naturally, that information added a new direction for speculation to run in, but not the full brunt. Most of the rumor mill and speculation seemed to be directed towards Amanda. She was the one who received the $2,385, and as the media was very quick to point out, she had a bit of a record a record that I'm not actually going to go into detail in in this episode. While I know that some people who have been following this case since the beginning might feel like her record should be included, she was never named a suspect, and as far as I could find, none of her previous charges were ever related to her mother. Moving into the following day, September 11th, GPS in the van Debbie had rented came back with a location. It was actually through the Sirius XM Guardian program where they have roadside assistance and stolen vehicle assistance, so they were able to tell police exactly where the car was. Officers found it in a small pull-off off of Highway 441, 58 miles north of her home, unlocked and unoccupied. Across the street from the pull-off is Victory Home Lane, which is only about a half a mile long and houses a men's faith-based addiction recovery program. Other than that, it's a pretty desolate area of the highway with dense woods on either side. According to the police report, Amanda got there around the same time they did and was hysterical yelling that that was her mom's car. A lot of people wondered how she even knew they were there, but reports eventually came out from Fox News saying that the police had actually let her know they'd found it and told her a roundabout area of where. It seemed crazy to me that they'd tell her that before physically confirming it, but in Amanda's interview with Crime on the Record, it looks like they gave her a pretty vague version of what was going on. However, she was set on finding her mom, so she opened up a map app that she regularly uses, which lets you know where the police are, and she went towards the two police vehicles showing up, which wound up being where her mom's van was found. With two officers on scene, one told the other that they'd actually seen the van parked there at 5 p.m. the day before, which would have been an hour and 43 minutes after she sent that Venmo, and an hour before she was officially reported missing. Amanda told officers that her mom had a bad back and that she couldn't have walked very far. So an officer took a short walk into the wood line to see if anything stood out to him, but nothing did. Because it was such a large and densely wooded area, he called for a canine unit to assist. 
When the canine got there, officers went deeper into the woods, and at the base of an uprooted tree, they found a red tote bag laying on its side and the remnants of what was once a fire, which is interesting because it had rained the previous day and was pouring when police found her van. But nonetheless, when they got closer to the bag and the remains of the fire, officers noticed a partially burned blue tarp a little further down the embankment. And just past that, he noticed the body of a female. She was partially clothed with charring to her abdomen and was grasping a small tree in her right hand. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, her feet were facing downhill, she had no top on, and her body was black and bright red in places. The officer was able to visually confirm that the woman in the woods was missing 59-year-old Debbie Collier. Stephen had made his way to the area by that time, and he and Amanda both stood at the edge of the tree line as Debbie's car was towed and her body was removed from the woods. According to the police report, investigators, the coroner, and the state fire marshal were all called to the scene, but what caught a lot of people's attention in this report was that on the first page where it asked the question whether or not the investigation indicated that the incident was drug-related, the box that was checked was yes. Underneath that, it says, if yes, the type of the drug or drugs used by the offender, and the box checked was unknown, which was interesting because none of the written reports below that mentioned anything about drugs at all, and the written reports were pretty detailed and from two different officers on scene. The checkboxes led to a lot of speculation about whether or not the men's recovery center down the road had anything to do with it, or whether or not there was anything at the scene that led investigators to the conclusion of drugs being involved. A lot of people referenced Amanda's comment that her mom had a bad back and wondered if any medication for her back might have made officers check that box. However, I spoke to a police officer who said that the first page of a police report, which is where the drug possibility was noted, is kind of a fill-in-the-blank section and that sometimes you get so used to tabbing over and typing Y or N that sometimes it gets ahead of you and the wrong box gets marked. And it seemed like that might have been what happened because Fox 5 Atlanta reported that there was nothing leading detectives to believe that Debbie's death had anything to do with drugs, noting that sometimes the boxes get checked with anything that might be a possibility. Now that we've gone over the report, let's get into a little more detail about what exactly was found in the woods. The Daily Mail actually sent reporters into the woods after the scene was cleared and followed the directions in the report. The ones that noted that a fourth of a mile southeast of where the van was found, they ran across the red tote at the base of a fallen tree, nearby was a partially burned tarp, and 10 or 15 feet further down the hill is where they found Debbie's body. With those directions and the trail of blue forensics gloves and crime scene tape left on the ground, the Daily Mail was able to find the area pretty easily. They took several photos, and the roots of the tree they found a lot of the evidence at the base of were pretty massive. Just eyeballing it, I'd say they stood maybe five or six feet off the ground, and in the hole the roots created in the ground, you can see burnt paper towels and what looks like the burnt remnants of the jacket of a hardcover book. I tried zooming in as far as I could to see what was left of the book and if I could figure out which book it was, but you just can't make it out. 
Along with the burnt paper towels and book jacket, you can see some melted blue material that looks like it was probably from that partially burned tarp. And there's also strips of burnt red material, which was interesting at the time because the report didn't mention anything about the red tote being burned. A lot of people had questions about where that came from, and we know now, but we'll get to all that in a minute. With the photos from the Daily Mail, a lot of people felt like too much potential evidence had been left behind at the scene, but according to a law enforcement official that I spoke to about this case, what gets taken from a scene differs from case to case. We don't know what was taken with investigators, we just know what was left behind. Regardless, it does seem like there was some room for cleanup, even if it was just the gloves all over the ground or the downed police tape, but that's just the anti-litter soapbox in me. One of the things that stood out the most to me when it came to where Debbie's body was found was the actual location. Initially, police tried to walk 50 yards northeast of her van but couldn't establish a scent. It wasn't until they went back to the drawing board and moved one-fourth of a mile southeast that they located her body. And according to the Daily Mail, that wouldn't have been an easy hike. It took them 15 minutes to go one-fourth of a mile, and when they got to the scene where Debbie's body was found, it was only 25 or so feet away from the road, and while the police report says that her body wasn't visible from the road, the Daily Mail said that you could hear cars passing by. This begged the question, why was her body found in the woods so far from her parked car when there was a road just 25 feet away? It goes without saying that Debbie's disappearance and death was one of the most out-of-the-ordinary cases investigators had seen in a long time, if not ever. The day after her body was found, the sheriff told the Northeast Georgian that they have more questions than answers and do suspect foul play. That while autopsy reports may take 6-10 to 10 weeks, they're treating her case like a homicide. Their first order of business was to subpoena Debbie's phone records, the GPS from her van, and speak to everyone who had interacted with her in the days and hours leading up to her initial disappearance. It also included several search warrants that the Outlaw reports were served at Debbie's home, as well as the one Amanda and her boyfriend lived at. No one knew the details of what those warrants were for, but it definitely got people talking, but not anyone close to the investigation. Family members and friends weren't saying anything. The closest anyone got for a while was a comment by a friend of Debbie's who told the New York Post, there's a reason we're keeping quiet. On September 22nd, Amanda did an interview with Atlanta First News where she told reporter Zach Summers that someone took her whole world from her and that she hopes whoever did it rots in hell. That interview led to countless people picking apart her tone, mannerisms, and whether or not tears were actually falling from her eyes. The public heat on Amanda only intensified when one of Debbie's neighbors spoke to the New York Post and said that they'd heard a commotion, screaming and fighting, coming from Debbie's house the night before she disappeared. The neighbor went on to say that there was a younger woman who would visit in the evenings and on weekends and that there's loud screaming and fighting. That being said, the Sheriff's Department told Fox 5 Atlanta that they have no record of any domestic calls ever being placed at Debbie's home. Not long after Amanda's interview, her boyfriend Andrew, of all people, decided to speak with the New York Post and it did all of the speculation towards him and Amanda 
absolutely no favors. He said that family members' phones had been confiscated and that they feel like they're being looked at as suspects, adding, they've interrogated all of us. The people who are closest to her are kind of looked at as suspects right now. Though no one had been named a suspect, and the only thing that came from that interview is that people now knew that Amanda and Andrew's phones had been confiscated. That's pretty standard procedure, at least on Amanda's end, considering she texted with her mom on the day she disappeared, and they had that Venmo transaction to look into. Both of their phones, however, could give insight into their locations between the time Debbie disappeared and when her body was found. So if neither of them were involved, the investigation into their phones could only help them. Andrew speaking on behalf of the family wasn't a good look, especially when he said, we have no clue what's going on. We've pretty much just been sitting at home watching movies. The day after Andrew's interview, Debbie's husband, Stephen, made his first public statement. He told the Daily Mail that it had been two long weeks and that he was very tired. He held back tears as he talked about what a wonderful person his wife was. And everyone who knew Debbie has agreed. She was phenomenal. She was bubbly, she was positive, and she valued everyone she met. Debbie's son told now Habersham that his mom was a vibrant and strong soul and said that he wouldn't rest until those who took her life faced justice. On September 24th, the sheriff spoke to now Habersham and gave the first public update in three days, which felt like a lifetime when it came to Debbie's case. He said, at this time, there is no evidence to suggest or support that this incident was related to a kidnapping or that this was a suicide. That meant that her message of they won't let me go wasn't about being abducted, and no one had mentioned suicide yet. It didn't seem like anyone had even considered that Debbie, who had sent a text about people not letting her go, and was then found badly burned in the woods, had committed suicide. Because of that statement, I actually looked into the statistics behind suicide by fire, and according to Seeker, self-immolation accounts for only 1% of suicides in high-income countries like the U.S., but shockingly enough, accounts for between 40 and 70% of suicides in the developing world. That being said, after that statement was released, unnamed sources spoke to Fox 5 Atlanta and said that investigators had found no evidence linking key people in the investigation to the location Debbie disappeared from or where her body was found, and that evidence was now suggesting that her death could have been as a result of an accident or suicide. The news pouring in from all angles was a freaking whirlwind of confusion, and it was hard to figure out what to believe. Were those key people Amanda and Andrew? We know police had their phones, so if they had no link to the locations pertinent to the investigation, then the speculation had to take a turn and go in a direction that hadn't been established yet. And if Debbie's death was caused by an accident or was the result of suicide, How do you even explain that? Why would she have been in the woods alone and how could she have accidentally caught on fire? If her death was a result of a suicide, why did she send the Venmo saying, they're not going to let me go? At that point in the investigation, absolutely nothing was making sense and it was about to get even more confusing.
On September 30th, surveillance footage was released, and it was a video of Debbie at a family dollar in Clayton at 2.55 p.m. on the day she disappeared. That specific family dollar location was an hour and 20-minute drive north of her house. According to the Family Dollar website, there are four locations in Athens alone, but Debbie went to one almost 74 miles away. According to Fox News, Debbie had also gone to Chick-fil-A before stopping at that Family Dollar. Debbie walked into the Family Dollar and shopped for 14 minutes before walking out at 3.09 p.m. While she was there, she purchased a reusable red tote, a two-pack roll of paper towels, a tarp, a rain poncho, and a refillable torch lighter. She seemed calm throughout the video and even rearranged some of the items at checkout to make it easier for the cashier to ring up. Debbie had personally purchased all of the items found at the scene just eight minutes before sending that Venmo to Amanda and it looks like she sent that Venmo while she was still sitting in the parking lot of the Family Dollar. The cryptic Venmo was sent at 3.17 p.m., and Debbie didn't leave the Family Dollar parking lot until 3.19 p.m. For more than two weeks, people had wondered how Debbie had even made the Venmo transaction if she had only left the house with her ID and debit card. But in the surveillance video, you can clearly see that she had her purse with her. The Independent reports that even though it wasn't listed in the police reports, Debbie's purse and her phone were both found at the scene where her body was discovered. There has been a ton of speculation into the Family Dollar video. Some people say they don't believe it's her because the body shape doesn't match Debbie's photos on Facebook and that you conveniently can't see her face because it's covered by a red visor. Her son actually said that he's not convinced it's his mom because it doesn't look like her posture, but Amanda told Crime on the Record that it's definitely her, that she recognized the red football jersey she was wearing as one that Debbie had had for about a year, a red football jersey that would have matched the previously unexplained burnt red fabric at the scene. As far as law enforcement was concerned, their investigation determined that the woman in the video was in fact Debbie and that she did purchase all of the items found near her body. On the same day the surveillance video was released and everyone was trying to figure out what all of it meant, the sheriff's office held a press conference. Even though Debbie had purchased all of those items herself, the sheriff's office stated that Debbie was killed during an encounter that was personal and targeted adding that her case was very complex with a lot of questions and unknowns that aren't typical in a death investigation. He noted that it was going to take more than 19 days to solve this crime and that they have no suspects nor have they established any motive. After the press conference, the internet went absolutely wild with new theories of what they think happened, and as you can imagine, they were endless. Fox 5 reported that a source told them that the dollar amount of the Venmo transfer was close to the amount of money that Amanda's boyfriend Andrew owed in probation fees, adding that the figure could be slightly thrown off by additional fees. Even reading that report felt like a reach, especially considering they didn't even note the amount Andrew owed in probation fees, and it felt like a lot of a reach for a pretty big news station to actually publish. There was also an article published by NBC where they spoke to someone who suggested the possibility that Debbie was killed by a serial killer. Another article that felt like a pretty big and baseless reach. Like I said, the media was getting absolutely wild. 
For more than a month, there were no updates. But on November 4th, just a few weeks ago, Yahoo News reported that the FBI had offered their assistance in the investigation, and it was assistance that the local police were more than happy to receive. Ten days later, The Sun reported that accelerant had been used in the fire that caused the burns to Debbie's body. Arson analysis had found the presence of gasoline on her clothes. Apparently, weeks after her death, police returned to the scene and found an empty gas can. How that would have gone unnoticed is beyond me, especially considering the fact that the state fire marshal had been out there, but what do I know? On November 18th, 2022, just 10 days prior to this episode airing, Debbie's autopsy results came back and the sheriff's office made the following statement. A detailed examination of all gathered information has enabled investigators to determine, based on factual evidence and data, that Mrs. Collier's death was self-inflicted. Furthermore, the GBI Medical Examiner's Office has determined that the cause of death was inhalation of superheated gases, thermal injuries, and hydrocodone intoxication, and that the manner of death was suicide. Now, Habersham quotes the coroner as saying, It's pretty evident that she started the fire. From what I saw and what I considered to be the case is that this was a self-inflicted death, but I was relying on the results of the autopsy and the doctor at the lab to make the final call. The investigation into Debbie's death was something that I don't think any of the law enforcement officials working on it could have ever prepared themselves for. And even now, there are so many questions left unanswered. Why did she send such a specific amount of money? Why did she send a message that seemed to be alluding to an abduction? Why did she park her car so far away from where she was found? And why did she walk so far when she was found so close to the road? Why would Debbie choose self-immolation? How did no one hear anything? As much as I hate to even verbalize this, it seems like Debbie's death would have been pretty painful, yet we never heard anything about anyone hearing a scream. Amanda told Crime on the record that her mom had never done drugs a day in her life, but the autopsy showed that one of her causes of death was hydrocodone intoxication. Note that it said intoxication and not overdose. I had to look up the difference, and according to Miracle's SRC Recovery Center, toxicity is usually an overaccumulation over time, whereas overdose happens after too much of a substance is used. That being said, it's certainly possible that the medical examiner's use of the words intoxication and overdose are used interchangeably. For so long, it seemed like law enforcement believed that Debbie was a victim of homicide and a personal and targeted one at that. But according to the coroner, he seemed to believe her injuries were self-inflicted all along. Debbie's case was a hard one to cover because, like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of speculation intertwined with the facts, and I think we can all see why. From what I've seen online, it seems like there is a 50-50 split of people who believe law enforcement got it right and those who believe they got it wrong. For all photos pertaining to Debbie's case, check out her highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media. All cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week and I cannot wait. But until then, 
we out. 